morning, church. I'd ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. 1 Thessalonians, as we continue in our series that we've entitled Ready, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4 and 5 this morning. And, uh, and as we do that, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our pa- uh, passage on page 987, page 987. And we've been in this series that we've entitled Ready. Uh, focusing in on what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ as we await the Lord's coming. And we've been learning from the Apostle Paul, who's been writing to this first century church in modern day uh, Greece, telling them that they need to be ready for all things that happen in life, especially when it comes to living a life that pleases God. Uh, They have, uh, through this process, as far as we've gotten in the letter, learned what it means to be ready to endure hardships and affliction. Uh, Learn to be ready to live upright and holy lives. Learn to be ready to love one another. To be ready to serve God and honor God in all that they say and do. To be ready to live pure lives in a a world of impurity. And he's been readying the people for a conversation that he's going to have with them in the last two chapters of this book, uh, which is really the, the, the crux, if you will, of what we need to be ready for. You see, we live ready lives in all of those different ways because we believe a truth that Jesus Christ is going to come back one day. And we are told to be ready for that coming. And we're going to be finishing up this letter over the next couple weeks, and we're going to be looking at chapters 4 and 5, and then we're going to move into 2 Thessalonians, Paul's second letter to the same group of people, and that theme of being ready for the coming of our Lord and Savior uh, is a central theme to the last part of this letter, and almost all of the letter that we'll look to in the next couple months. And as we do that this morning, what I want to do is hit a pause button on our series. Before we move any farther into the text, to take some time to establish some terms, to establish some truths before we move into the next couple sermons ahead of us. Now we know that after receiving word from Timothy, Paul uh, hears of what's going on in Thessalonica. And we've been reading some of the things that have concerned Paul up to this point about the church in Thessalonica. And Paul starts in chapter 4, verse 13, by addressing what seemingly is an issue where someone in the Thessalonica church had lost a Christian brother or someone uh, who had died. And the Christians were wondering, what happens to the Christian if they die before the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? What happens with them? Uh, Where do they go? What are they doing? And so Paul is going to address that in the passage that is going to be preached through next week. But then the question comes up, what happens if we are alive at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What happens then? And Paul is going to address, again in the passage that we'll look at next week, how that all is going to take place. He's going to tell them you need to be ready, whether for death or the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds one day. And I'm glad that Paul addresses this. I'm glad by the Holy Spirit he does, because even today, there's great confusion on the question of death, and the question of what end times entails, and what it will involve for not only the unbeliever, but the believer alike. And so before us this morning is a task that we have to understand some of the foundational truths surrounding this issue of end times. And I want to do so by setting the stage this morning. But before we do, let me pray. Father God, we come before you, and I ask for your blessing on our time in the Word. Lord, I pray that you would use this information as a way maybe to introduce those who have never heard this before uh, to gain some understanding of what your Word says about the, the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and some of the events that may be involved in that process. Lord, I pray for those who who maybe have been believers for a long time. Lord, I pray that uh, it would be a time to reevaluate and and, and maybe uh, be reacquainted with some of the truths that we've known but maybe have forgotten why. Lord, I pray that in all of it, it will move us to mission. It will move us to serve you in greater ways, to evangelize our friends and our family, Lord, that we would see that we have a job, we have a purpose in this life to bring you glory and honor, not just for our own good, but, Lord, so that others may see you. 
and know that you are the one who is true. And just as you came once, you promised you would one day come again. Let us live in light of that truth this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, before I get into my message this morning, I'm going to tell you it's a very different message than probably one that I've ever really preached or maybe even preached in a long time. Uh, for those that have been around for a while, you know we grab the Word of God, we take the verse that's before us, and we start verse by verse working through the text. Well, today, I don't have any particular text before me that I'm going to walk through. We'll go back to that next week, and we'll continue what we're doing. But like I said, I want to hit a pause button today. And instead of looking at the Scriptures, if you will, biblically, as we walk through the Scriptures, I want to look at the Scriptures theologically. I want to do a study, an understanding of what the Bible says about this issue of end times. And so this is going to be a little headier of a message. Uh, I want you to stick with it. The Bible tells us we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, What's the third one? Mind. So I want you to stretch your mind this morning in some ways to be able to, to sit under this teaching. I want you to take good notes so that you'll notice we've got a lot of work to do this morning and we're going to get you out here probably before the sun goes down. So be encouraged by that. So when the second service comes in, you're going to fill them in on the details and then just move in the middle. We'll just get you all in here this morning. No, we'll have you out in due time. But, but I want you to be listening uh, very intently to what is shared. It's an important truth this morning. Well, when I was in high school, I loved sports and I kept busy with sports. But the greatest time of the year that I enjoyed weren't the three sports I was a part of throughout the year. But it was this time of the year because it was a school musical time. I know it might surprise you, but I was quite the thespian back in my day. Um, I, I thought I was going to Hollywood, and then they told me I had a face for radio. So I learned that and, and uh, accepted the hard truths of that. But, but I'll tell you, I, I loved being a part of sports teams, but there was something pretty impressive about being a part of a production uh, with lots of people. And, and I enjoyed the plays we did. I still can remember them. We did things like South Pacific and The King and I, Oklahoma was my favorite one of all the four, and, and Carousel. And, and I remember dozens upon dozens of students getting together, everyone playing their part. And one of the things I was always a part of was the acting side of it. But there was a group of people that were always working. When we were memorizing our lines and rehearsing, there was always a group of people who were doing uh, what was just as important. But here's the thing. That group of people never got any applause, if you will. They were never seen. They never had any lines. But their part was just as huge as the main uh, part of the play. Uh, their part was to design all the sets to make sure all the props were in a proper place. You see, without the set, without the props, it would be hard for the audience to see what was going on and really get into understanding the story. But here's the thing. We are enthralled with the actors. We are enthralled with the plot line. But very rarely do we do the groundwork that's needed to make sure that in the plays of life, if you will, that the proper stage work is set up. I remember, even as an actor, as I would be uh, practicing with uh, my fellow actors, uh, we would sit there, and it was hard to find our bearing without the proper props. And our team would say, don't worry about it, we'll have it there. Don't worry about it, we'll get something there. And then when it was time for the dress rehearsal, everything was in its proper place. And even as an actor, I came to understand the role and even some more depth of the understanding of the story before me. Today, what I want to do is I want to set the stage. I want to set up the, the backdrop of understanding end times. And for some of us this morning, we come to a topic like end times, we have no idea what we're talking about. Some of you are new to church, and, and you're not sure of anything that I'm talking about. And you're going to hear a lot of big words today. I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, but this all may be new to you. For some, this has caused great consternation, confusion, in churches, this has caused conflict. For centuries, Christians have tried to understand the subject of end times. We've tried to understand it and tried to understand what the Bible says about it. You turn to the History Channel and you will see show after show celebrating the prophecies of a man named Nostradamus. And there's a dozen after him. Those that are trying to, and they weren't followers of Christ or followers of God. They were uh, those that wanted to try to know what the end of this world would look like. And whether you believe it or not, they've set prophecies uh, that have been interpreted in many different ways. 
But for us as Christians, we know, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know that the issue of end times is something that is, in many lives, central to their understanding of Scripture. A group of people uh, that seek to understand with great speculation what the Scriptures have to say about the future. This was true in the days of the Thessalonians. They had questions. They wanted to know. They wanted to understand what God's plan was for them, what God's plan was for the world. And the book of Revelation hadn't even been written yet. For many of us today, we we find ourselves trying to work through these issues so that we can be ready for the coming of the Lord. Now, the issue of end times throughout church history has been one that has been primarily a secondary issue. Agreed by all Christians, Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox Christians, the three branches of Christianity, all agree, listen to me, we all agree that Jesus Christ will one day come back for his people. That's a truth that everyone affirms. But in the last 80 years or so, especially amongst evangelicalism, the issue of end times has become central to our understanding of Scripture. As a result of that, thousands of books have been written. Tens of thousands of sermons have been preached on this subject. We know of more than than dozens upon dozens of failed predictions. We just had some not too long ago of Christ returning at a certain date and at a certain moment. But listen, none of that was about the, per se, the return of Christ but more about, the debate is more about the times of the end and how they might look and seeking to understand the times and dates. This morning I preached to a many different group of people and I want to share with you some of my friends who who, uh, are trying to understand end times and I want to introduce you to some of them. So let me introduce some of my friends who are trying to understand end times. My first friend, I'd like to call her Clueless Chloe. She has absolutely no idea what I'm talking about today. Quite frankly, she doesn't understand half the stuff I say. But I'm funny, nice looking guy, easy to look at. I'm just kidding. Okay? And and she's here. She's not sure why. She's hoping to get some answers, but she's here. And today you're going to hear again a lot of things that maybe you don't understand, but I'm going to tell you, stick with it. It will all make sense, hopefully, in the end. There is another friend, I like to call her, Who Cares Wilma. She's one who's given little thought to the promise of Scripture. She's so enthralled with the things of this world that she can't imagine that at any time the Bible would ever make a place in the world. It would ever take center stage. Wilma's content to live her life, continue to view Jesus as some historical figure consigned to the past, and not one who would ever be able to come back because no human being has ever been able to do that. She's who cares, Wilma. Then there's disbelieving Darla. Darla's been a Christian for a long time. She's grown tired and weary. She finds the struggles with the world and the garbage of the world weighing heavily on her. And all the while she has prayed, she has hoped for years for the coming of Christ. But it seems just as far off as it did when she started years ago. And as a result of that, she's losing hope and starting to wonder if it'll ever happen. She's disbelieving Darla. Then there's scared Scarlet. Scarlet is one who loves the Lord deeply, but she reads the books and seen the movies and she's freaked out. She doesn't want to be left behind. She's worried about the ongoing and growing persecution in the world and can only find herself looking with fear and trepidation as she reads anything in the scriptures that speak of the future. She's freaked out. Then there's my friend, Newspaper Ned. He's the one who looks at Bible prophecy as the latest installment of National Treasure, a biblical and prophetic game of clue, utilizing present-day events to put together the pieces of a divine puzzle to then be able to do one thing, and that is to establish an exact timeline for the events to occur. His main focus is finding the Antichrist, who is that great man of evil. For Ned, it usually is the uh, uh, leader of the opposing political party, by the way. And what happens is, is the scriptures look more like a cover page of a cheap tabloid magazine than holy scriptures. 
That's newspaper Ned. I have another friend. I have a lot of friends, by the way. Political Polly. Polly learned her ways from Ned, and she goes one step further. She begins to use end times prophecy to determine who we should support in the world. She's unwilling to give some countries passes while giving others only a condemnation of punishment. She tries to understand how to vote based on the issue of end times, what will bring forth or what will cause the end times to not take place. This type of prophecy causes uh, human beings to be viewed as pawns in a prophetic chess match instead of people who are loved by God. Then there's my friend, Confident Carl. Now before we go any farther, let me tell you, there's a part of each of these people in your preacher. I can't tell you how many internet searches I've done on the issue of eschatology. It has sent me on a million searches. I, like you, love to speculate. I, like you, are... are um, uh, mesmerized at times by the idea of the future. But we need more confident Carls in our midst. Carl is one who knows as much about the scriptures as all others. But he recognizes the allure to end times pursuits is at times fleeting and even uh, lacks the fruition that God would demand of us. And so he pursues an ongoing pursuit of holiness Carl recognizes that God is doing his job and he has called us to do the same. That God has said that he will bring forth the end just as he brought forth the beginning and that our focus and our job is to love one another, to reach the lost, and to live our life in accordance with God and his word. Carl is the living example of a couple quotes I would like to share with you. You see, Carl lives by this first quote. Rather than spending all our time reading magazines and books trying to figure out what the future might hold, maybe we should spend more time just getting to know Jesus better. Then when the future becomes present, we'll enjoy a wondrously close relationship with the Almighty. And we'll be walking with our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what happens. James Edward spells out Carl's position very well. He says, the premium of our discipleship is not based on predicting the future, but on our faithfulness in the present, especially in times of trial and suffering and adversity. These are my friends. Now, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 5, 1, he gives us, in essence, two poles that we have to hold in tension. In verse 13, notice in the text, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. And so for my friends who say, you know what, these are too hard to understand, it's too difficult, so I'm not going to worry about it, I'm just, ignorance is bliss, Paul says that's not good enough for a follower of Jesus Christ. They need to know some information that the scriptures have declared about the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But on the opposite spectrum, Paul then says in chapter 1, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul is echoing that Jesus said, no one will know the time or the date but my Father in heaven. So he doesn't want you to be uninformed, so that's the one side, but he doesn't want you to think you're going to know everything either. So we're going to hold in tension this information that he does give without understanding maybe the full picture. And so before we dig into our, our uh, understanding of the passage before us next week, let's do some groundwork in understanding how the church has understood these things and how our church in particular will address these things in the weeks to come. So notice your first uh, point this morning is the distinction that we make between various doctrines. The distinction we make between various doctrines. As we come to the subject of end times, we must understand that people take this study very seriously, and in some ways, rightly so. And while that may seem personally acceptable, it is imperative that we put our understanding of particular doctrines in their proper place. It would be good for you, as you do theology, and by the way, we all do theology. We do theology every day, how we understand God, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world is doing theology. And one of the things you have to recognize is I've taught a theology class uh, for the last uh, almost uh, six years at this church. One truth that you have to understand is that not all doctrine is created equal. 
Not all doctrine is created equal. The Bible tells us much about many things, but the Bible does not tell us about all the things equally. There are things that the Bible majors on, and there are things that the Bible minors on. And we need to recognize to focus in on the things that the Bible majors on, then making our commitment to focus in on those minor details. So how do we break it up? The Bible seems to break it up in four ways. First of all, there are doctrines or beliefs we die for, that we die for. What I mean by that is these are truths that we hold with great fervor. These are non-negotiables. If someone doesn't hold to these, then they aren't a true follower of Christ. One example would be the deity of Christ. You cannot be a Christ follower and not believe that Jesus Christ is God. Because if he's not God, then how did he get raised from the dead? If he's not God, then how can he be seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and majesty? If he is not God, then we have bought into a story of a martyr and not the king of kings. Well, when it comes to the issue of end times, what's a doctrine that we would die for? The very truth that Jesus Christ is coming back. Why? Because if Jesus Christ isn't coming back, then he told a lie to his disciples in John 14. When he said, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, then I will come back and bring you to be with me. Well, if he's not coming back, he just told a bold-faced lie to the closest associates that he had. If he's not coming back, then he lied in the second-to-last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22.20, when he says, surely I am coming soon. If he's not coming back, then Jesus just lies, and he at numerous times says, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. Well, then he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. We have to, and as I said, all branches of Christianity say Jesus Christ is coming back. They differ on the details, but on that one truth, they agree. There are doctrines we die for. Notice there are doctrines we debate. Well, these are issues that do not reach the same level as the previous ones. These are doctrines that Scripture seems to be clear on. But you can take one of two paths in understanding them. One of the issues that is hotly debated within the church, not just this church, but all churches, is the question of the issue of salvation. Who plays the major part in salvation? Is it God or is it man? We hear the words like predestination and free will, and we can debate that over and over again. And, and I can show you verses on free will, and you can show me verses on predestination. And we can have an argument, and it's a whole lot of fun. Bible students in Bible colleges all over the place, that's what they do at night instead of playing video games. And they debate these things. And at the end of the day, these debatable issues are ways that we set up our churches they make their way into doctrinal statements. They find themselves being the pattern of how we'll do ministry. They're important things. But if someone disagrees on you on this debatable issue, uh, they are things that do not consign them to being an unbeliever or not a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, what about the doctrines of end times? What do we debate? I would say one of the debatable things is the nature of the millennium. You see, Jesus, er, John says, in fact, in Revelation 20, that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ, that Christ will come and reign on earth for a thousand years at the, at the second coming of Christ. Some believe that to be a symbolic thousand-year reign. Some believe it to be just simply a symbol uh, of a reign that's really taking place in our hearts. Others believe that that, in fact, is a literal thousand-year reign that will happen here on earth. Nobody really knows, right? Nobody's been there. We haven't lived there yet. And so we can debate these things, and churches do. Then there are doctrines we discuss. We discuss. These doctrines are stated in the Scriptures, but there's no clear consensus as to how to understand them. People have strong opinions about them, but at the end of the day, if we're really honest, we never can be 100% on our position. When it comes to the end times, the timing of a rapture, the understanding of the tribulation and some other events are things we can discuss, maybe even at times debate because we have fun doing that. Because they're fun, they're interesting to speculate, but we can't be quite sure. We don't know what to make of it. And then there are very quickly doctrines we dump. We dump. 
These are things that were never meant to be doctrines that Christians were to make into beliefs or doctrines. Paul said in Titus 3.9 that Titus stay away from foolish controversies, genealogies about the law. He says they are unprofitable and they are worthless. They only cause quarreling and fighting. When it comes to end times doctrine, we need to dump, listen to me, any discussion that seeks to pinpoint the coming of our Lord. Why? Because Jesus with his own words said, no one will know the hour or the day. If Jesus says that, why would we invest time and energy trying to pinpoint or predict the coming of our Lord if our Lord and Savior said, hey, only the Father in heaven knows these things. And because Jesus says that, we need to dump that and we need to help people understand that that's not doing good eschatology or the study of last things. These are the distinctions between doctrines. Well, once we understand that, then we need to move to the diversity of beliefs. Where has the church been at on this issue of end times? Within the debatable doctrines, remember, all Christians of all branches of Christianity agree on the coming of the Lord one day, but we differ, and within that, there's a different understanding of how to interpret the Scriptures when it comes to end times. I'm going to look at four groups very quickly for you that, that fill the, the idea of Christianity with regards to end times. Where did they fit on it? The first view is what is called the preterist view. How do we interpret scripture, the church says? Well, the first way we can do it is by holding to this view called preterism. This holds the contents of the book of Revelation as a prophecy of events that would happen in the first century. So they read the entire book of Revelation and say, okay, when is this to take place? And preterists believe that it took place in the first century. One of the things that they will debate is the writing of the book of Revelation. Many people wondered, was the book of Revelation written somewhere in the uh, period of 80 or 90 AD? Or was it written somewhere around the time that the book of Thessalonians was written in 50 or 60 AD? And as it's written, they say, listen, there's a whole lot of bad stuff coming. And so when they see the beast and they see all these terrible judgments coming out and people running for their lives, these preterists hold to the idea that what John is writing about from the book of Revelation are events that will happen at a particular time in the first century. Historians would say that the worst time for the Jewish nation was A.D. 70. In AD 70, up the years up to AD 70, the Jewish people were having rebellion upon rebellion against the Roman Empire. The Emperor Titus, not the same guy who wrote the book of Titus, but the Emperor Titus got so sick and tired of dealing with the Jewish people that he besieged the city of Jerusalem. He starved them out. And as he starved them out... At the point of them being weakest, he sent in what was at the time one of the largest armies assembled in human history and absolutely decimated the city of Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of people were killed. People ran for their lives. At that time, the Roman soldiers, to defy the God of Israel, burned a, a pig on the altar that was given to the Lord what was called the abomination that causes desolation. Now you say, well, where would they get this view? Why would they think this is happening in the past? Because Jesus, when talking about end times, he's addressing them in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and 25. He says, this generation will not pass away until the fulfillment of my words. What generation? Some future unknown generation or the generation he was speaking to? Luke 9.27 says, again, these are hard verses that we don't like to struggle with. Luke 9.27 says, these things will come as a fulfillment that many of you will not taste death until you see the coming of the Lord. Well, who holds these views? Some whack job? Well, I'll give you two people that I hold in high regard that hold to this position, and many of you will know these names. R.C. Sproul, great Bible teacher. Hank Hennegraff, who on the radio is called the Bible Answer Man, affirms this position. That's the preterist view. How about the historist view? The historist view. What view is that? They interpret revelations and all the prophecy of Scripture 
that it is telling us what is going to take place in the entirety of human history from the ascension of Jesus Christ to the second coming. And so what they're saying is that human history, however long it is between Christ's first coming and second coming, will be filled with these events. And while we cannot pinpoint with great accuracy what those events are, we recognize that those things are going to happen. They're going to take place. And at some point in the future, after all these events have taken place, Christ is going to come back. He will then therefore make his fulfilled return. The ones that hold this view are quite phenomenal. You again say, wait a minute, I read revelations through a futuristic perspective. It's going to happen in the future. Why would you consign it to the past? Well, let me tell you some of the people that did. John Whitcliffe, John Knox, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator. So we have the starter of the Presbyterian Church, the starter of the Methodist Church. We've got the starter of the Lutheran Church. And uh, maybe you're not very denominational. Well, the Bible you have in your hands has come as by God's grace and two great men, William Tyndale and John Wycliffe. And they all disagreed with many of us on the issue of end times. So then there's another view, the idealist view. The idealist view is an interpretation that the book of Revelations and passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 see the scriptures as imagery of a book of symbols. According to this viewpoint, they are not merely just symbolic of events and persons, but really more of abstract ideas of good and evil. So they would look at the book of Revelation and say, listen, don't pinpoint anything. It's all symbolic. He's written this great book to tell us that good is going to prevail over evil. That's the whole story. That at the end, good prevails over evil. And so the job of Revelation is to remind us that we should live out good lives, godly lives, because in the end, even though we grow tired and grow weary, like evil seemingly gets on our nerves, remember, God is going to win. And the good is going to win and prevail always over evil. Adherence to this view are men in church history like Augustine and Karl Barth, a theologian of a century ago. So these are views, all of which I would say the majority of us don't hold to. And yet godly men and women affirm these truths. Well, what's the final view? It's the futurist view. This view teaches that the events of prophecy, the scriptures before us next week, the book of Revelation, are all going to take place somewhere in the future. That they have some fulfillment in the past, but a more clearer fulfillment at some point in the future. A futurist interprets the book of Revelation in the following way. Write this down somewhere. Chapter 1 of Revelation describes the past. It describes the past. Chapters 2 and 3 describe the present. And chapters 4 to 22 describe the future. Adherence to this were many of the early church fathers, such as Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, many of the disciples of the first disciples. But this view lost its way somewhere around the third century. And it would be non-existent, listen to me, the idea of interpreting the book of Revelations and the passage in Thessalonians before us in a futuristic way was non-existent. There's no writing in church history that says that that was the idea of the scriptures, the interpretation of the scriptures from the third century on to almost the 19th century. It was only about 150 years ago did this view start to take hold again. And it's come back with a vengeance. It's the, probably the most popular view that's held within evangelicalism and is most likely the view of almost anybody who would have a position here in the church on the issue of end times. But here's the thing. Now we, we know maybe how we might interpret this thing. Now we have to then ask the question, how are we going to work with now even more of the debatable issues? Because we're just figuring out how to interpret the end times. Now, what direction do we take? My next point I want you to look at is the direction we take 
in teaching in times. Now we've moved from the big church now to the local church, Village Bible Church. I wrote on behalf of the elders for our small groups a uh, distinctive about how we approach end times, the things we hold with a closed hand, the things we hold with an open hand. But here's the thing. While we're pretty open on a lot of stuff, meaning uh, there's, there are only what I would say the majors in our doctrinal statement for a member of our church to affirm to be in good standing, the church still has to have in some way a position of where it will preach. Today, four campuses will hear the same message being preached, not the exact same message, but the same focus, and there are four different guys preaching it. Well, what if we all held the different views? We would have a church that's one church in four campuses, but one that holds one view of end times and another that holds another view. So there needs to be some level of unity in our teaching. And so the elders spent some time in our last meeting with the teaching team working through these issues and trying to understand these issues and try to understand how do we interpret revelation? How do we interpret what's going on here? We're going to come to the passage that speaks of the day of the Lord next week. Does the day of the Lord happen uh, seven years uh, prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming because of the tribulation that must take place? Where do we date that? What do we do with Revelation 20? Is it a literal kingdom or is it a symbolic kingdom? These are questions that I know. Some of you are saying, who cares? I'm telling you the church has to take some level of position on them. We have to interpret even the hard passages of Scripture at times. So while our church doesn't have a litmus test for secondary aspects of end times, the teaching team recognizes we have to hold to a position. And I want to share with you our position, what we've come to, and are preaching today to all of the people of Village Bible Church. The position that we hold is called uh, another big name, I'm sorry for these big names, but historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism. Historic means that it's an old view. It's a view that was held by the early church fathers. It's historic, it's old, okay? Premillennialism says that we believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. It's not symbolic. It is an allegory. It is a real thing. It will take place at some point in the future. The way that this position plays itself out is that we believe since the ascension of Jesus Christ, we have been living in the last days. So anytime you see last days, it's not talking about at a time in the future. It's happening right now. We are in the last days. Now you say, wait a minute. Days, we've been living in thousands of years now, right? 2,000 years since Christ. Well, let's remember, to Christ, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. He's got his own timetable. So life is going to go on as we know it. There's going to be good times, there's going to be bad times. We recognize on this earth that there will be areas of great peace, and in other areas of the world, there will be great violence and persecution. And that's going to go on and on for the course of human history. But then at some point in the future, at some point, it may be tomorrow, it may be a thousand years from now, at some point, the world as we know it will endure a time of great tribulation where evil will seem to have power in ways that maybe it never did before. All the while, during that time, the church will still have major victories. Well, how can that be? How can a church be under so much persecution and see so much growth? Well, let's remember the book of Acts. They're being thrown in prison. They're being killed. And what's happening? The church is growing and growing and growing. So it will be during these days. And then at some point of God's own choosing, during this time of great tribulation, Jesus Christ will come again. He will establish his kingdom, and he will usher in eternity. Now, for those who are wondering, some of you Bible students are saying, wait a minute, Tim, help me out with this position a little more. What are you saying and what aren't you saying? Well, what I'm not saying is, is within this position, first of all, it holds to a post-tribulation return of Christ. And I'll explain why in a moment. It also does not take a sharp distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. But it sees the church as a fulfillment of Israel and yet not completely replacing it. There's a nuance there. We agree with most of the early church fathers and a myriad of incredible contemporary theologians. Who holds this position? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, George Eldon Ladd, 
Francis Schaeffer, James Montgomery Boyce, Philip Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College right now, John Piper, Alistair Begg, Donald uh, D.A. Carson, Albert Moeller, Mark Dever, and David Platt are some of those that would affirm the position we hold to. Now, you share a position. What do we need to know about it? First of all, we hold this position in a charitable posture. While we hold this position, we recognize that at the very essence of it, it's a position. You got to take one, right? Here's the position that we take. And we recognize, listen, that there are great Christians, both past and present, both outside of this church and within this church, who hold positions differently. And listen to what I say. We hold with great esteem and respect men and women who hold differing positions than we do. Some of my favorite friends, some of my favorite pastors, hold different views in the stance that we're taking today. But thank God I will see them in heaven and they will see me, right? We want to be charitable. It's a position. Number two, we want to be careful to be, have a consistent interpretation. One of the things that is, is, is very important for us as a church is that we look at the scriptures in as clear of a way and straightforward of a way as possible. We do not make, and I know again this will cause some people to wonder what in the world is he saying, we do not make a sharp uh, uh, break between Israel and the church. While we see each of them fulfilling a plan in God's vision that we believe in a one people of God. And we preach that way. If we made a sharp distinction between Israel and the church, we would have never preached on the Ten Commandments. We would have never preached much of the Old Testament. Because we would have said that was for Israel. Let's preach about what's for the church. And our preaching model has never gone that way. We have preached and understood that Jew and Gentile alike are within and grafted into the family of God. It's a consistent interpretation. It allows for, listen to me, a contingency plan. A contingency plan. I know there are some here who put great hope and solace in what is called a pre-trib rapture. And I respect that. That's a great position to take. It's a wonderful, great men and women have affirmed that position. But here's the thing. If I only preach that position... And tell you, listen, when persecution starts getting hot, don't worry about it. The elevator is going to take us up, right? Jesus is going to come back. You don't have to worry about this, this great tribulation you don't have to worry about. If you're right and I'm wrong, we're both going to be blessed. I'm going to high five you on the way up, right? But let's say we're wrong. And we're a part of a tribulation. A tribulation like the world has never seen before. If our understanding of the scriptures is that without a shadow of a doubt, we're going up before that tribulation takes place, we will be ill-prepared for what the Lord may have willed us to go through. I can illustrate it this way. When I get on a plane, I assume that the plane's going to take me from one point to another without any issue. But these, these flight attendants get up and they say, hey, by the way, Thank you for flying with us. And while we intend that you're going to get to your place safely, in the event that we lose cabin pressure, masks are going to come down. You better put that on or you're going to die. Especially you big man in the front row here. You don't got much oxygen already. Get that mask on. Oh, and by the way, we don't anticipate that this plane is going to careen into the ocean. But in the case that it does, your seat will become a flotation device. Why do they do that? Because they recognize that if something happens, you need to be an informed individual, not a misinformed individual. That in that moment, you need to be ready to act, not ask questions. We teach a post-trip position here as a teaching team because we want to prepare you to be pastoral with you so that in the event of an emergency, you're ready to serve God and honor God no matter what comes. If you're right and we're wrong, then we're in heaven and we'll be happy to concede that point. It finally brings, and one of the things we do is we hold to a celebration of God's plans. End times, listen to me, end times were not written to freak people out. Do you know that? And yet 99% of Christians are freaked out when they read this stuff. End times, listen, wasn't supposed to be written so that we would go on these all-out journeys to find a Bible code to figure out times and dates. 
Paul says it twice in the passage we'll look at this week. Encourage one another, comfort each other with these words. Why? Because we have a God who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And he's got it all figured out, and he's got it all ready, and he knows exactly what's going to happen, and he knows exactly where you're going to be at. And in those moments, in those times, we can celebrate that God is good, and he's got a wonderful plan for our lives. And we celebrate that. We move then to the description Jesus gives about end times. Turn in your Bibles to Mark 13. I'm almost done, so stick with me. Mark 13. Mark 13 is the single most concise passage of Scripture on end times from the mouth of Jesus that we have in all of Scripture. In Mark 13, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I will give your sensible people, I'll give you the assignment of looking at it, but I will walk through, again, a very natural reading of the text what Jesus tells us. So notice Jesus' description that he gives. Let me, let me share these with you. In fact, Phil, just put them on the screen for us, and I'll walk through them. Listen to what the Scriptures say. This is Jesus talking. Jesus, if anybody knows about end times, Jesus knows it. Can we agree with that? Listen to what he says. And you can see on the screen how, uh, from a natural reading of the text, it's, it's understood. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So in verses 1 and 2, what do we see? What seemingly is the events of the first century. Then what we see is the uh, persistent ebb and flow of history. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of war. Notice he says, for a nation will rise against nation, verse 8. Kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes. So what he says is, hey, disciples, Christians, when you experience an earthquake, don't think that it's my coming. There's going to be a lot of those. There's going to be famines. At the end of verse 8, they are but the beginning of the birth pains. So notice in verse 9, he goes to this personal experience of end-time living for Christians. But be on your guard. They're going to deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and the kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand for what you are to say, but say whatever is given in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will rise against parents, and they will have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You say, wait a minute, that's not happening in here in America. Sure it is. Some of you are ostracized right now out of your family because of following Jesus Christ. Some of you in your marriages, because you're a believer and your husband or wife is not, there's great turmoil. There are stories upon stories of Muslim converts in the Middle East whose children are turning their parents in because they've bowed the knee to Jesus. And the next thing that the ch parents see is the children with, with bands of terrorists, Islamic terrorists coming in to put them to death. This is what's going to happen. It will be the personal experience of Christians living in the last days. Notice there's seemingly a personification of evil. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing, how can something stand? It's got to be a person. It's got to be something. Where he, that's another personal pronoun, ought not to be, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus says, there's someone's going to come. And in that moment he comes, it's going to be ugly. You better start running away from this guy. He's not going to bring peace and joy. He's going to bring terror in his wake. The personification of evil. Then notice in verse 15 through 23, there's a period of a great emergency. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor his ho- or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, he's lamenting, oh my goodness. Pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation that has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elects, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. So there's going to be this period of great emergency. And right when things are at its worst, but he says, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. We call that the day of the Lord. That's what Paul's going to talk about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You see, Jesus doesn't give us a whole lot of details, right? He doesn't give us a lot more than what we need to understand. And so what are we to do with the description that Jesus gives? Let me close with this, with the five minutes I have left. What is God's design for addressing end times? Why would he do it? Have you ever asked that question? Why does God, like, whet our appetite with some of the information and then not give us any, of, any more of it so that we can fight and bicker amongst each other, right? Why does he do it? Because he says he can. And he says that there are some things that he keeps to himself. If he declared all of who he was, then he himself wouldn't be God. We would know all that God is. And God says there are things that I'm going to hold back because I'm God and you're not. So why does God share these things? Why does God share 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, uh, and, and the rest of, of the book and all of Second Thessalonians. Why does he do it? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, to provide insight into the future. Paul tells us that he does not want the people to be uninformed. He doesn't say, I want you to know all the information. I just don't want you to be uninformed. This allows us to plan. This allows us to prepare. This allows us to see uh, what is going on around us with a particular lens. And God wants his people to know these things. Not all of it, but to prepare for his coming at any time. It is to promote hope amidst grief and trouble. In verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, comfort each other and encourage one another with these words. He says again in verse 11 of chapter 5, therefore encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. End times reminds us that God is in control And that we can have hope in that. We don't need to be filled with fear. We don't need to be filled with dread. Why? Because it points us to God's sovereignty. He's on his throne. He's got it all figured out. He's not worried about the devil. He's not worried about an antichrist. He's not worried about people fomenting with great anger against him. He is settled, seated on his throne, and he is seeing each event play out just as he knew it would. It puts eternity into our hearts. You see, natural man says eternity. Natural man, go ahead there. Yep, natural man says eternity is a circle. You know, and we learned that from Mufasa and uh, um, Simba, right? The circle of life, right? Okay, bad doctrine, all right? Disney does have some bad doctrine. There's a lot of bad doctrine, but okay. It's a circle. We live, we die, someone takes our place, right? And it just keeps going and going. The Bible speaks of life as a linear line. You have a beginning, you have an end. Man lives once, he dies, and then comes judgment, the scripture says. If I have a God who says he created me, and a God at the beginning who knit me together in my mother's room, and he is the same God that will judge me in the last day, then shouldn't I think about how he wants me to live between those two dots? Shouldn't I take into great consideration that he has a plan and purpose for that life? 
and not think I can do what I want, how I want, with whom I want, when I want, where I want, but that I might put into perspective that if I am going to close my eyes in death and open my eyes to a righteous judge, I better understand what he's going to judge me on. And I better understand how I ought to live. It puts eternity in our minds so that when we make these what temporal decisions that we do in life, that they actually make sense. It puts eternity in our heart. And it should hope, promote a heart of evangelism. We believe that Jesus Christ had come back before the end of this message. Some of you think that's a thousand years from now. But it could happen at any time. And if Christ can come back at any moment, and the judgment can take place, then shouldn't we be seeking the salvation of our family and friends? Should we not seek the salvation of our communities? Should we not be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ that gives sight to the blind and life to the dead? Should we not do that so that we can help people around us be prepared for the judgment of God that is to come? The Bible says on that day of judgment, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. I don't want that for my friends. I don't want that for my family. And so that should promote in me a realization that God has shared something with me that he says is going to happen, then it should reorganize the way I live my life, the way I spend time with my neighbor, the way I reach out to my unfriends, uh, unsaved friends and family, that I might take into consideration their future and not just my own. To share the gospel of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It is to say that my eternity isn't more important than someone else's. And so I'm going to do all that I can to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them so that we might spend eternity together. I understand this morning this is a hard message. And I understand for some of you say, wait a minute, you know, a lot of information. Be students of the Word. Study the Word. You've seen today, this is a sermon that says Pastor Tim did his homework. You know, maybe we should pay him this week, right? But we need to understand this, and we should allow it not to puff us up, but to motivate us to godly living. If your end times don't change how you live holy and upright lives, then it is not of God. If it causes you to be afraid, when the scripture says do not be afraid, if it causes you to be anxious, when the scriptures tell you to not be anxious, then you're misunderstanding what the scriptures have laid forth with regards to end times. End times is to bring comfort, peace, and joy because God is on his throne. So with that framework, we will pick up next week at verse 13 and we will continue to understand Paul's letter. But to that end, let me pray and dismiss you. Father God, we come before you And we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I understand this is a different kind of sermon. I understand that there may be questions. I understand there may be even disagreements. And yet, Lord, I pray that I have done what you've called me to. I recognize, Lord, that not only are you the judge at the end of this age, but you say that teachers of your word will be brought under even a stricter judgment. I stand under that, Lord, today recognizing that my job was not to promote personal ideas or personal agendas, but to do the best job to make sure that you look all glorious and all powerful and would point people back to you. Lord, I pray for the unbeliever in our midst, new here to the church, new to Christianity, new to the scriptures, that they would recognize that these truths that we teach each week are not helpful little anecdotes that make your life as a mom or as a dad or or as a person in this world to be better. But that, Lord, our eternity is at stake. And that we'd recognize we will give an account one day. And so, Lord, I pray today that every person in this place, if they've not done so, would bow the knee to Jesus. And if they don't know what that means, that they would run up to me and ask me at the end of this message, what must I do to be saved? So we can talk through what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to receive the gospel. For those, Lord, who have been saved for some time, who have heard these truths, that they would not be caught up in all of the jargon and all of the things that have been shared, but would recognize that surely you are coming soon. And I'm thankful that you say,
you are with us to the very end of the age. So let us live with confidence and endurance, looking watchfully and prayerfully for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We love you, and we give you this day as a celebration of who you are and what you've done. Now release us in peace and in fellowship with one another, that we might encourage one another, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. It is to that end we pray. In Christ's name, amen.